This evening we're going to be in 2 Samuel 18, and we left off with David and his men crossing the Jordan and camping at Mahanaim, all the while really trying to avoid Absalom and the other soldiers. The reason why David fled the kingdom in the first place was so that there wouldn't be further bloodshed. And tonight we're going to see that Absalom and his men are hot on David's trail. They're, you know, they want to go get them, won't be satisfied until David's dead. And at this point, David can't run anymore. And his men have to turn and fight Absalom and his troops. And we look at the, really the child of God who may do all that he or she can do to avoid confrontation in certain situations. And hopefully it's not this type of situation as dramatic, but there's just a certain personality type that just pushes and pushes and pushes, a bully type. And there's times that we have to stand because our back is against the wall and confront the situation. Unfortunately for David, the bully is his son, Absalom, and the ends are tragic for both of them. And we'll see that, starting in verse 1. And David numbered the people who were with him and set captains, captains of thousands and captains of hundreds over them. Then David sent out one-third of the people under the hand of Joab, one-third under the hand of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, uh, Joab's brother, and one-third under the hand of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the people, I will also surely go out with you myself. But the people answered, You shall not go out, for if we flee away, they will not care about us, nor if half of us die, but they will care will, will they excuse me, will they care about us? But you are worth ten thousand of us now, for you are now more help to us in the city. So the king said to them, Whatever seems best to you I will do. So the king stood behind the gate, and all the people went out by hundreds and by thousands. Now the king had commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captains orders concerning Absalom. So David numbers his soldiers. He divides them up into three groups, really putting a captain or a general under each group. It's a military strategy. Um, you know, I have a lot of fun with studying military maneuvers. Uh, there could have been a pincer movement or a flanking movement or there's, there's a whole host of things he could have done. But his predicament was he wanted to lead his men. A good king would go out to battle with his men, but he also didn't want to, he didn't want to kill his son. He didn't want to stand and fight his son. Uh, this is still his blood. So the people convince him, you know, you're, you're a prize to Absalom and his forces. You, it'd be better off if you stay here and let us go out and do the fighting. So in a sense, you could say that David set up a command post uh, for deployment, redeployment, and such, while the three groups go out to battle. And pretty much, <clears throat> the generals are told, in no uncertain terms, deal gently with Absalom. Try to capture him alive, if at all possible. Remember, so much had gone on, and, and it's kind of interesting, because Absalom tried to burn all these bridges with his father, and he did some awful things, thinking that this would definitely burn all the last bridges, but dad still loved his son. It was still his son. Now, I say this that we know Absalom dies. We're going to find that out before it's over. And what happens is, you know, this actually is better for Israel as a whole, post-war Israel, for everybody to come back together. If Absalom was still alive, you could see that there would still be factions and still maybe be uh, coups being planned and such. And I'm kind of reading into this a little bit 
And I really believe that it was God's sovereignty that stopped, um, that ended up where Absalom gets killed. It's my opinion. Uh, Israel was more important than one person. Israel's healing as a nation was more important than one person being caught alive. And I, I think that there's times, well, I don't think I know that there's times where we think we're doing the right thing and God overrules us. Please tell me that's, that doesn't always only happen to me. You know, we have this plan. Maybe we think it's the nice thing to do. And God overrules us. He has a better plan. It doesn't work out the way we prayed or the way we planned. You know, God is sovereign. He's going to make sure that ultimately, uh, you know, things probably be less disastrous than they could be. Verse 6. So the people went out into the field of battle against Israel, and the battle was in the woods of Ephraim. The people of Israel were overthrown there before the servants of David, and a great slaughter of 20,000 men took place there that day. For the battle there was scattered over the face of the whole countryside, and the woods devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. So you have this face-off between Absalom's troops and David's troops, and it's a great slaughter. There's about 20,000 men who die in battle that day. Probably, you know, if not all, would be Absalom's forces. Uh, this is, you know, God wanted to make sure that David was back on the throne. And in, in Veterans Day, I couldn't help of, you know, in light of the week that we're thinking about those that have gone before us and served, I just think of the Ardennes Forest, right? How many battles were fought in not only World War II, but World War I. And it, it just the thing about the woods devouring more than the sword, it, it had to be very difficult to fight on that terrain. There were ravines, there were cliffs, there were... Uh, ways that men could die and lose blood without getting to the medic, so to speak, in these woods, getting lost, uh, famine, disease, whatever. So not only were there perils of battle, but there were perils of the forest. Verse 9. Then Absalom met the servants of David. Absalom rode on a mule. The mule went under the thick boughs of a great terebinth tree, and his head got caught in the terebinth. So he was left hanging be between heaven and earth, and now the mule which was under him went on. And there's a picture for you. <laughs> so we have this situation. Probably Absalom should have taken a war horse if somebody could have counseled him. But again, part of this message is really the fact that he's prideful, he's narcissistic, he's self-deluded. He thinks this is going to be a swift victory for him. And that turns out not to be the case. So you kind of imagine the picture where he's on this mule and... It must have been a pretty thick forest. There must have been some low-hanging branches, and it could have been a very thick uh, setting. And maybe Absalom's looking back, and as he's riding, and he turns around, and he just he gets clocked in the head, and he gets entangled in this, this tree situation, and uh, he is hanging between heaven and earth. I kind of think of, and, and guess what? The mule takes off. <laughs> the mule was smart. I think about Balaam's donkey, right? How she sees the angel and she says, oh, I'm not going that way. And she crushes Balaam's foot. He gets so mad at that donkey. But you know what? Sometimes animals can be smarter than people. <laughs> and this is another one of those situations. But, you know, you wonder how this happened. You know, was his hair bouncing up and down? And that was part of the issue. Remember the weighing of the, of the hair? And, and, you know, you see this, this almost kind of glorious picture uh, physically of, of Absalom. Uh, all I can think about was tall, you know, the Bible, he's tall, handsome, really long flowing hair. 
Fabio came to mind for some reason. <laughs> so, so you've got this Fabio-looking type of guy, and you know his hair is flowing, and he gets caught, and guess what happens? Yeah, he's, he's caught by his own hair. And I say that because the Bible is clear to tell us that Absalom was extremely handsome. And, you know, this, the hair thing was probably part of something that made him man handsomely, I don't know. But probably the things that gave him the greatest popularity, charisma, um, you know, looks, were the things that caused his demise, sadly enough. And, you know, there's so many Christians, there's so many people, but unfortunately there's so many Christians. And let's, let's, look, let's talk about this for a minute. Whether they idolize ball players, they're throwing a ball around. Come on, let's put this in perspective. Or actors, they're pretending for you. You know, or famous people, or elitists. And, and Christians, like, go after this stuff. I see it all the time. And every day we read in the paper that the thing that brings these people, that Christians are envying, to the height of their popularity, usually what? It causes their demise. I mean, seriously, who's loving Justin Bieber? You know, he's an accident waiting to happen. Who, who's loving Miley Cyrus? I mean, gee, she becomes a woman and this is what she needs to do to be, become popular and her father's supposed to be a born-again Christian. Fathers, protect your daughters. Don't put them out in that situation. It's, it's frustrating. These ball players who, you know, they, they're either overdosing or they're, they're, they're on painkillers or, you know, by the time they're in their late 30s, their bodies are ruined. Uh, because it's all about the excitement and making the money and becoming famous and rising to stardom. And these are the things that's killing these people. And every day we read about it, right? Back in the 60s and 70s, it was Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin. And now we've got a whole, sadly enough, they're really young now. These young, famous people who are, it's, you know, overdosing and, you know, and, and making a, a ruin of their lives. It's very sad. So, I mean, who's loving them? Who's giving them the godly influence? You know, we need to be praying for them. I don't say this to make fun of them. So, what, all that glitters is in gold. We see that with Absalom, and we see that with other examples. Uh, verse 10, it says, Now a certain man saw it and told Joab and said, I just saw Absalom hanging in a terebinth tree. Just Remember that crazy glue commercial where the guy was with the hard hat attached to the beam and his, his legs are dangling and stuff. Um, you can just imagine the sight. He's, he's not getting out. So Joab said to the man who told him, you just saw him and why did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have given you ten shekels of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, though I were to receive a thousand shekels of silver in my hand, I would not raise my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Beware lest anyone touch the young man Absalom. So this unnamed man was paying attention. He finds Absalom hanging. He tells Joab, Joab's like, why don't you kill him? You know, I would have given you money for it. But this man's loyalty, right, his loyalty and his integrity, his obedience to the king, was more important to him than a great sum of money, much more than Job was going to give him. Where do you find that these days? Right? That's a, that is, boy, if you find a friend like that or an employee or, or a mate like that, boy, you, you've hit the lottery. Um, it's, it's better than money because that is, you know, these days it's all about money. But here, honor integrity was greater than uh, financial reward. Verse 13. 
Otherwise, I would have dealt falsely against my own life, for there is nothing hidden from the king, and you yourself would have set yourself against me. Interesting statement. You know, Joab, if I did kill him, you'd probably be the first one to turn me in. <laughs> he knows a little something about Joab. Joab's a crafty guy. So the man didn't do it, but Joab takes matters into his own hands and somehow conceals it, at least for a time, from the king. Joab's a man, I think the more we look at the scripture, Joab is a man who's really on the edge. He's on the edge of truth. If he has a faith, he's definitely on the edge of his faith, if any. We know people like that. That's a dangerous place to be. Always on the edge, right? Always looking to be edgy. Always kind of caught between, you know, the, what's right and what's proper and truth and, and fudging things and manipulating and stuff like that. So Joab, he was a good military guy, but uh, he definitely was a thorn in David's flesh uh, more than once. And we'll see that later on as we go through this. Verse 14, then Joab said, I cannot linger with you. And he took three spears in his hand and thrust them through Absalom's heart while he was still alive in the midst of the terebinth tree. And then, and ten young men who bore Joab's armor surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. So Joab can't tolerate the discussion anymore. I've got to finish, finish off Absalom, maybe before somebody else finds out. We've got to do this thing secretively, get rid of this guy, kill him, dump him in a pit, and be over with him. No offer of surrender, no trial, no chance to defend himself in combat, combat just murder him. And Joab's men are just like him. You know, you ever see mob mentality? Where a bunch of people maybe who wouldn't do something on their own commit a crime. Now they have these flash mobs, these shoplifting mobs, and they just come in like a pack into stores and take stuff, but they do it because they're in a mob. So Joab's men are no different. You know, they, they, they see it, somebody did it first, they all jump in, and you can just picture the scene. I don't know if there was ever a movie done on this, but it probably was tragic, a tragic thing to see. Um, you know, and we often become like those we keep company with. Right? Careful, it doesn't rub off on you. And I've said this a million times. Who are you hanging out with? Is your spirituality rubbing off on them? Or is their worldliness rubbing off on you? Sometimes you have to reevaluate those situations. I've had friends, I've had things while I was in ministry and God painfully excised them, separated me from things. But I want friends like everybody else, Lord, but you're a pastor and I expect more from you. And that's not the things you should be doing. You know? And he says that to us sometimes, doesn't he? And, and be prepared, because if he's going to use you in ministry, he will do that cutting. Right? He will do that cutting. Influence, very important. And sometimes even believers have this attitude that I can handle it. It's a little fire. It's hot. It's burning my hands, but I got it under control. Believers, brothers and sisters, be careful about playing with fire. Because eventually we get burned. We start to see the marks of the singes, right? Verse 16. And Joab blew the trumpet, and the people returned from pursuing Israel, for Joab held back the people. And they took Absalom and cast him into a large pit in the woods and laid a very large heap of stones over him. Then all Israel fled, everyone to his tent. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up a pillar for himself. Now this guy's not innocent. Now I think we've come to that conclusion many times already. He's no innocent lamb, uh, which is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name. And to this day, it is called Absalom's monument. Wow. You know anybody who 
makes monuments to themselves. <laughs> so Absalom's dead. Joab calls off the attack, stops the war, <clears throat> and Absalom is buried in a pit. Several, several hours before the battle, Absalom thought that he was going to be the beloved king. He was going to be victorious. Everyone was going to cheer him on. And here he is dead with holes in him, lying in a pit. No proper burial, no eulogy, just an ignominious way to die. So self-deception can be very brutal for some. 1 Corinthians 10:12. I love that. It says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And I think we should all memorize that scripture. I'll say that again. Let him who thinks he stands, this prideful attitude, look at me, I'm doing this, Nebuchadnezzar, look at my Babylon that I've created, and then he's in the grass on all fours, eating grass like an ox, because God, he, he disciplined him for that. Take heed lest he fall. And Proverbs 16:18 said says, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. People don't say, pride goes before the fall. It actually says, Pride goes before destruction. It's even more powerful. Haughty spirit before a fall. So, Absalom, while he was still alive, erects a monument to himself. You know, he doesn't have any sons, but I wonder if maybe he could have married somebody and raised a big family. Maybe war and bloodlust and power was so preeminent to him that he didn't think about raising a family. So he just erects this monument maybe thinking one day he would die of an old age and conquer Israel and everybody would gather around this, this great monument and um, he's in a pit. So I want to talk a little bit about narcissism. I have two articles because Scripture is awesome and when in Calvary Chapel we observe, right? We interpret and we apply. There's three steps to it. So let's talk about how to apply what we're learning this evening. Right? This guy had a lot of promise, but he was prideful, he was narcissistic. I want to read two articles, and I can make copies if you need them. The first one is written by Dr. Keith Ablo, and it's called, We Are Raising a Generation of Deluded Narcissists. It says, and it's, bear with me, there's only a few paragraphs to each article, but I think they're very good articles. It says, a new analysis of the American Freshman Survey, which has accumulated data for the past 47 years from 9 million young adults, reveals that college students are more likely than ever to call themselves gifted and driven to succeed, even though their test scores and time spent studying are decreasing. Psychologist Gene Twenge, the leader author of the analysis, is also the author of a study showing that the tendency towards narcissism in students is up 30% in the last 30-odd years. These data were not are not unexpected. I've been writing a great deal over the past few years about the toxic psychological impact of media and technology on children, adolescents, and young adults, particularly as it regards uh, turning them into faux celebrities, the equivalent of lead actors in their own fictionalized life stories. Think about this, self-delusion. On Facebook, young people can fool themselves into thinking they have hundreds of thousands of friends. They can delete unflattering comments. They can block anyone who disagrees with them or pokes holes in their inflated self-esteem. They can choose to show the world only flattering, sexy, or funny photographs of themselves. Dozens of albums full, by the way. Speak in pithy short posts and publicly connect to movie stars and professional athletes and musicians they like. I don't care what's going on in society. We need to be paying attention about what's going on in the church, and this is going into the church too. 
Using Twitter, young people can pretend they are worth following as though they have real-life fans when all that is really happening is the mutual fanning of false love and false fame. Now, this was about young people, but I've got to tell you, it isn't just young people. There's a lot of adults, people in their 40s and 50s, who should know better and are doing this stuff. That, that make, that's even more tragic. So I don't want to just pick on the young people. They're definitely the issue with the new generation, but it, it goes on. And this is Gene uh, Twenge uh, saying that Facebook and Twitter is a narcissism enabler. A few, few sentences here. She says, apparently narcissists thrive on social media. One paper concluded narcissists, narcissists use Twitter as a kind of technologically augmented megaphone, a means of amplifying one's own perceived superiority to others. They use Facebook as technology-enhanced mirror, reflecting a preoccupation with one's own image. Others' reaction to this image and a desire to update the image as frequently as possible. Two experiments showed that spending time on Facebook causes higher self-esteem, while using MySpace caused higher narcissism. In another experiment, those who received a blow to their egos were more likely to want to use Facebook. In sum, narcissism clearly leads to more social media use. Social media use leads to positive self-reviews, and people who need a self-esteem boost turn to social media. It is less clear whether social media directly causes narcissism, at least in the short term. With narcissists having more friends and posting more frequently, however, social media sites are clearly influenced by those high in narcissism at a rate higher than their fair share, and that's just the way they like it. What do you think of that? Sad, isn't it? Sad. And you might say, what's the big deal? Well, it, there's another statistics out, and actually this isn't just some made-up thing. It's saying that we are, in, in this time in the United States, we are at the higher, highest rate of singleness that we've ever been. Well, some people want to find a mate, but also marriage is really plummeting. Right? So people don't want to make the commitment. Some are good people, and they can't find others you know, who, to, you know, good, good finds to marry, so to speak. And I think the problem is we just, we're a nation of individuals now. A nation of individuals. Extremely high single rate, extremely low marriage rate. People are choosing not to be married. So, I would just say this as well. If you know somebody who's involved in this, especially if they're a Christian, don't feed it. Don't feed the pig. If they're always talking about themselves, always with the pictures, always with the comments, just every day, dozens of pictures of themselves, stop hitting like, because you know what you're doing? You're hurting them. I may, t I may talk about this Sunday as well. This killed Absalom and it wounded a nation. And I'm, I'm concerned that indirectly it's going to hurt our nation if it already hasn't done so in grievous ways. So Absalom lost his life. Maybe when I looked at the Bible in an immature way, I'd say, yeah, the bad guy got it. But Ezekiel 18 tells us that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. The Bible also tells us his desire is for everyone to come to salvation. So this was tragic for the Davidic dynasty, for the nation of Israel. And here's another thing. What kind of example did it set to the pagan nations looking around? Wow, look what's going on in their own household. Let's just sit back. Maybe they'll destroy each other. Wait a minute, aren't they the people of God? Weren't they supposed to tell us about their great loving God? And look at them. They're tearing each other apart. 
Can we make an application? Sure we can. Verse 19. Then Ahimaaz the son of Zadok said, Let me run now and take the news to the king, how the Lord has avenged him of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You shall not take the news this day, for you shall take the news another day. But today you shall take no news, because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go tell the king what you have seen. So the Cushite bowed himself to Joab and ran. And Ahimaaz the son of Zadok said again to Joab, But whatever happens, please let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, since you have no news ready? But whatever happens, he said, let me run. So he said to him, Run. Then Ahimaaz Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now remember, uh, Ahimaaz is the priest's son, and he's valued by Joab. So he knows, Joab's very shrewd, he knows that David's not going to be happy with the news, and he doesn't know how David's going to react. So he says, Ahimaaz, why don't you just sit tight, and I'll send the Cushite over there, a guy in his eyes probably of lesser value. Whatever the king does, the king does. Just sit tight. So after this argument for a while, Joab finally consents to let uh, Ahimaaz run and, and head over to the king. So God's not a respecter of persons, but apparently Joab was. He valued one person's life over another. Verse 24. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof, over the gate to the wall, lifted his eyes, and looked. And there was a man running alone. Then the watchman cried out and told the king, and the king said, If he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he came rapidly and drew near. Then the watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gatekeeper and said, There is another man running alone. And the king said, He also brings news. So the watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, He is a good man and comes with good news. And Ahimaaz called out and said to the king, All is well. Then he bowed down with his face to the earth before the king and said, Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. The king said, Is the young man Absalom safe? And Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant and me, your servant, I saw a great tumult, but I did not know what it was about. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. And he turned aside and stood still. Just then the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, There is good news, my lord the king, for the Lord has avenged you this day of all those who rose against you. And the king said to the Cushite, Is the young man Absalom safe? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise against you to do you harm, be as that young man is. So Ahimaaz gives news to the king. David wants to know immediately how Absalom is. Joab knew this. And uh, Ahimaaz fears, he seems a little flustered. He's not really sure how to answer that question. Then the Cushite is questioned, and apparently he's actually a little bit more diplomatic and There's a reason why Joab sent one instead of the other. Last verse. Then the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Obviously, the king is distraught. He breaks down in tears. And correct me if I'm wrong, this is the third child who's died as a result of the sin with uh, Bathsheba, the one out of, out of the adultery died, then uh, Amnon after that, and now uh, Absalom. 
And uh, it's not over yet. Uh, Adonijah rises up against his father too, and we'll see that later on. So this is, um, you know, David knows that he, he's, he bears responsibility in this situation. As we close, we can only say that sin is a destroyer. If anyone thinks that David got off easy, I used to think that. Oh, he committed murder. He, he was adultery, and God let him live. Man, if you, again, <laughs> I thought a lot of stupid things when I was immature. Um, if you ever think that David got off easy, think again. Because David's life was filled with pain and sorrow. To watch your own kids, to be the king, had, it was such a powerful position. But there were some things that David could not have power over. He couldn't have power over his, king's, his kid's salvation. He couldn't stop the, the violence inside his own family. And he couldn't stop the death of his children. So he didn't get off easy. Sin has ramifications. Absalom had his own sin to deal with. Pride, narcissism, and self-delusion. And all three contributed to his tragic death. Imagine the, with the charisma that Absalom had, what God could have done through him if Absalom was a humble man. Because the king, the people had his favor. He had their favor. And just based on his looks, imagine if he was a man of character. But he didn't go that way. I pray that we took a, take a look at our own lives and also the company we keep because these aren't just Bible stories, they're lessons. There's a reason why God records his sacred scripture for us to study. Tragedy from sin and self-delusion continues to take the lives of so many in 2013 in the United States of America. So I just pray that we would learn to keep ourselves in check, to look in the mirror and make honest assessments Repent to God anything that needs to be repented of and make those changes and not become part of the tragic statistics that we read about. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we, we thank you for these lessons. We